This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the 2022 Petrus Development Conference. Join Catholic fundraising professionals in Naples, Florida this June to build the tools and community that make fundraising enjoyable and fulfilling. For more details and to register, go to petrusdevelopment.com slash pdc22 and use the coupon code PILLAR for $50 off your conference registration. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, Ed the House Hunter Condon. Ed, you house hunting today? No, no. I said a friend is in... You, you literally just told me that you were going house hunting with a friend. That is that is absolutely nothing like what I said. What I said was a friend of ours is in the neighborhood house hunting, and he's going to come over to say hello while he's in the neighborhood. I am not going. I don't do house hunting. No, I'm pretty sure you said that you're gonna you're gonna look at houses. I'm not look. I I will not look at houses. I'm not going to do it. I can't afford a house, and I have no intention of looking at houses I can't afford. I restrict myself only to looking at watches I can't afford. I can only have so much. Um, unattainable material avarice in my life. And I, you know, I can confine it neatly to wristwatches. I don't, I don't need to look at houses I can't afford. Fair enough. This is, um, Ed, a kind of an unusual episode of the Pillar Podcast. Believe it or not, this is a kind of unusual episode in this way. This is um, what I am calling an on-the-fly episode, a scat episode, if you will, an ex-temp episode. And the reason for that is because we have have, – we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, as we often do. But we have been having a heck of a day. In fact, we've been having a heck of a week just with a lot of things happening. We have been, I I guess what you would call busy guys – and as a consequence of that, we have uh, not – we're kind of squeezing the show in between one thing and another thing, and we have not had time to do what we usually do before a show, which is sit down for a half an hour or so and talk out exactly what we're going to do on the show and a kind of point-by-point sort of uh, um, you know visitation of, of, of what the show is going to look like, a strategy session, if you will. Um, that's our <laughs> ordinary way of being, but it, it's not what happened this week. You know that I'm not usually in the room or on the call when you have that half an hour planning session, right? <laughs> well, what we usually do is I have to I spend some time as the host. You know, I as hosts do, I spend some time uh thinking about the show and what I want to talk about on the show. And then often before the show, I tell you, okay, this is what we're going to talk about. And the reason I have that prerogative, well, everybody knows why I have that prerogative. Um, we all know why I have that prerogative, but I have that prerogative and it is what I do. And I do, I think, invite you into it. Um, but usually we are, uh, this is a well-oiled machine. And right now, uh, it's not. This is um, this is like this is a real time. I mean, dun, 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 dun. this is like a real time in your face, coming to you live with no planning at all, for a freestyle episode, if you will. Is that not? Is that it, not fair? It's true. I mean, again, I I don't know that I will notice the difference. I wonder if our <laughs> listeners will. Well, okay. What well, do you want to talk um, about? Do you have any ideas? If not, I no, have some things no, we can talk no. about. <clears throat> I actually was gonna. I I have a lot of things. I have a lot of things that I want to talk about. But I was going to hand it over to you. Uh, well, I mean, this is. I mean, at least in terms of the n- news we've been reporting, this is Education Week. It is. Basically. This is Education Week. School, school, school. This is yeah. Um, so, I do you want to talk about that? that? Well, uh, we have had. 
a new instruction from the Still Congregation for Catholic Education. We had soon this to week be. a new instruction from the Congregation for Catholic Education on Catholic identity. And I'm going to tell you something about that instruction. The other things Please you want do. to talk about, we're going to get to. But I'm going to tell you something about that instruction. It has been largely missed. I mean, it, it's amazing. I, I, uh, 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 we read it. We covered it. We analyzed we it. We looked at it we a little did. bit. But to be perfectly honest, I have seen very little coverage of it. And I'm surprised because this is a, 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 a strong and important document, I, I think. It throws some serious fire. I would have expected um, this to get a lot of play, particularly in, in the U.S., to be I, I honest. I thought that it was I mean, going to get a lot of play in the so-called secular media, if you will, the mainstream media, if you will. I mean, I thought it was going to get—I yeah. thought there were going to be lots of headlines like, you know, Pope says Catholic schools must discriminate or, you know, these kinds of things that are sort of inversion of what's happening in the document, as far as I can tell. But I thought we would see a lot of coverage because what does the document say? It says, uh, it, well, um, <clears throat> in a sense, it says nothing new in that it is a, it is a systematic treatment of the, of the concept of Catholic education, what it calls the project of Catholic education and the community of a Catholic school and who's who and who does what in, within that community. And but, legally, it's what? It's an instruction. It's an instruction. And what which, is an instruction? Of course, everyone, an instruction is an, is an act of executive authority, which um, advises and obliges in the manner in which law is to be interpreted and applied. So it has, if you like, uh, legal force in that sense. It says that there are there are laws, and here's how you are to read and apply and live by those laws. Here's how those laws are to be enforced. <clears throat> and while this instruction, um, because it is an instruction, it doesn't create new law. Right. An instruction um, clarifies the law. Exactly. Uh, and it clarifies the law in this case, and it clarifies um, Catholic teaching, that is again. There's no novelty here. This is this is a restatement, a clarification, a, a reiteration of, of Catholic teaching around the idea of education and specifically Catholic education. But it it speaks, and I don't know if you know. I I lack a a thoroughly global perspective on the state of Catholic education and and the sort of trials and tribulations facing Catholic schools across the world. But absent that perspective, it it otherwise seems to me to be speaking very directly into a lot of conflicts, controversies, policy discussions, um, legal cases that have faced and um, been dealt with by Catholic dioceses and religious congregations in this country uh, in recent years. It says inter alia. I mean, do you, well, hang on. Well, I, I want to talk about right the big the picture of what it says, because I think You're what you want to do, I mean, you, you and I had this, when we were reading it, <laughs> I'm like, wow, this is a very powerful document, and it really bespeaks a very beautiful vision of Catholic education. And Ed is like, oh, it does? I only noticed that it seems to affirm the juridic standing of people to make recourses, which it does, and that's fine. But I think before we get to the juridic standing of people to make recourses and some other legal elements of the thing, and there are some interesting, by the way, potential civil law implications of all this. I'm not a civil lawyer, but I've seen one on TV, and I think there are some real implications here. But – uh, before that, I mean, it really talks uh, – the function of the thing, most of all, is to talk about a Catholic school um, as existing – as identity existing um, as reference to a Christian concept of life centered on Jesus Christ. It is a call for Catholic schools to be Christocentric centers of community formation, formation not only of students but of, of families, of, of, of parishioners, and then um, – Formation not only given by teachers, but formation sort of extended by parents and pastors. It is it is an expression of a Catholic school 
as a community, uh, a uniquely Christian community, both in terms of the way in which it does the work, which is to say there's a sort of dignity of causality that everyone is participating, and also the end of the work, the, the, the ontology of the work, which is to say the mission of a Catholic school is Christian discipleship. And it's very clear that Catholic schools need to um, reaffirm, reevaluate, reassess, and recommit to Catholic schools as a part of the church's mission. Yeah, and and I think that's I, I think that's a big you know I mean like you know like okay is there a juridic consequence to what I'm saying yeah some but more than that it's just a very strong affirmation of the need for Catholic schools um, to be what they say they are which is um, effectively formational centers of Christian discipleship and of understanding well, the world through the lens of the gospel. I'm just making sure you're finished. Approve. Thank you. Um, yes, where I, I mean, this, this is clear that the, the project of Catholic education is a project for integral human development, effectively, that this is not about education in academia, per se, or catechetics, but the idea that a, a true Catholic education is um, not just the imparting of knowledge, but the imparting of faith, the fostering of virtue, um, the the instruction in how to understand the the meeting and marriage of faith and reason in the intellectual life it's all of these things it's very it's very beautiful it's wonderful it's very holistic um, and I like that very much it's very clear that Catholic identity is not um, a word on a sign it is not a nod to an institution's past. In the side of you know some some institutions I think famously refer to in the Catholic right, the tradition. Right, school in the Catholic tradition. Yeah, a, a research university is, in the Catholic tradition. Yeah, there is no such thing in in this document that a Catholic school is one which has a Catholic identity, mm-hmm. and a Catholic identity. The congregation is extremely clear is not something that you claim for yourself. That it is um, it, it is a it is an inherent quality that is. Um, discernible in its presence or absence, and that it is the church, specifically the congregation, but also filtering down from the congregation, the diocesan bishop, religious communities, that are charged with ensuring the authenticity of Catholic identity. Right. That, you know, it is not, um, if you like, a a sort of um, a a confederation of differing opinions and definitions right. and all the, no, the no, school has an ecclesial, ecclesial identity. It, indeed. It, and, um, I, I found that very nice. I found that very well said and very, uh, well articulated in the entire document. I, I also enjoyed, um, the I mean, you say I jump right to the the sort of legal implications, and I guess I do because it's a legal document. It's an instruction. The purpose of it is to convey the proper understanding, interpretation, application of law. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But one of the things that I think articulated best this sense of how real the the Catholic identity of a school is, and so how real the role of everyone participating in that Catholic community is, is in the way it speaks about um, teachers. And the way it speaks about teaching as a vocation and the way it speaks about um, teaching is something to which people are called. And it is uh, it's recognized as basically an ecclesiastical munera, an office of the church, Mm -hmm. even in this document. And it makes it very clear that teachers are all in Catholic schools, evangelists, catechists, teachers of religion, that it's not possible to teach 
um, in a Catholic school any subject or any material or to address any part of the life of the school or of the students or of the wider school community in a way that is hived off from or insulated from or not imbued with the gospel, that this is something which needs to penetrate and move through the entire life of the school. And I found this particularly interesting because, of course, we have seen in the United States a number of um, dioceses defining in their own Before we diocesan. get there, who is responsible for ensuring that? Ensuring which? Ensuring that the, that the whole of the school is imbued with the mission of the gospel and with Christian character and Christian moral principles. And Well, a lot of people, I mean, again, this is the community of the school. So pupils are responsible for it. Mm-hmm. Parents, Parents are absolutely responsible for it. Parents are given incorrectly because it, again, affirms the the teaching of the church, although this is not to say it's a matter of church teaching, it is the church's teaching articulating a natural law truth, which is not oh, you're, proper. Oh, the parents the, are the proper educators of the children is the, the truth of natural parents law. parents are but, the proper and primary mm-hmm. educators of their yep. children and have the first and last say over what is the proper education for the children. Now, again, as we've discussed in previous episodes, every right that the church recognizes comes with an obligation. Its own, its own obligations in this case, to ensure the Catholic education of their children, although they retain the freedom and discernment over the best means of imparting that Catholic education. But so you have pupils are responsible for ensuring the Catholic identity of a school. You have parents are responsible, obviously teachers and school administrators, the diocesan bishop, the conference of bishops, and ultimately the Holy See. The pastor. We want to say the pastor as well as school administrators because there's an emphasis on this. Because there's an emphasis on the ecclesiality of the school, there's an emphasis on the idea that most schools are apostolates of the parish, share not only in the juridic identity of the of the parish, but in in the whole um, in the in the in the in the whole identity of the parish as um, uh, as a, 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 as a community of the Christian, a certain community of the Christian faithful, like sharing and receiving right. from and giving to, um, engaging with that community as gift and as recipient of gift, and the diocesan bishop. And the reason I kind of wanted you to say that before we get to the next thing is there is a strong emphasis here on the obligation of the diocesan bishop to oversee, engage with, lead with, set precedent for the Catholicity of the Catholic school, whether it's a parish school or whether it's a school administered by a religious institute. The, the diocesan right. bishop has um, the, the right and at times the duty to visit schools, to collaborate with principals, these kinds of things in order to ensure the Catholicity of the thing, um, that it is he who is, the, who is the, uh, the, the, the guardian of Catholic identity for the Catholic school. And then at the same time, there's this other thing. Um, so if you want to talk about m- sort of the diocesan bishop manages downward towards the school, then there's this other thing where parents are affirmed not only in principle as the, um, uh, as the, uh, as the um, uh, primary educators of their children, but p- there's also a, 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 um, an emphasis here, something which I've not seen the church say before. I could be wrong. Maybe it's in Gravissimus Educationis or something like that. I don't know. But something I've not seen certainly in the law of the church before, which is to say um, schools need to involve parents in the decision-making process, that parents have a right to participate in the decision-making process. Now, the church is hierarchical. Participating in the hi- decision-making process doesn't mean vote. You know, you get a deliberate vote on, it, on things, blah, blah, blah. But it does mean... Um, because parents are the primary educators of their children, the school owes them more than platitudes about that, but an invitation into decisions about the um, the administrative life, you know, the life of the school um, on, in, in a concrete way. And I, I think that's right. fascinating. It's a, it's, a, it's a genuine sort of application of the church's ecclesiology. The bishop has a role. The, the lay faithful have a, have a role. Pastors have a role. And again, this absolutely plays into a, a very live debate in large parts of American society where 
we have seen arguments about, you know, we, we have seen it stated in terms that by school administrators, that parents have no role in what goes on in schools and should have um, n- neither any presumed right to know what is going on in a school and certainly no say over over what happens. And also, uh, by the same token, people saying that, you know, state authorities, that governments and governors and whoever else should butt out and leave the teaching to the teachers and also, and what the church presents is a, is a completely different mentality um, rather than saying which constituency is in charge here. Um, it right. presents, as the church always does, a, an authentic integration of the whole Christian community. Right. And you know, it's not a it's not a community without a hierarchy. It's not a it's not a sort of amorphous blob. It's a community with structure and dignity and a hierarchy. But it's a community with very very well defined roles, rights, and responsibilities. Uh-huh. So I found that very interesting. Um, I found it very very good, very helpful. I think it's something that should be shouted about. That, you know, with all of the sort of school board wars we're seeing all over the place, that this is this is a kind of authentic vision for, for Catholic education, which I think couldn't be more timely, um, but has, as you said, gone strangely unnoticed uh, in a lot of places. And I have some theories about why that is, um, but we'll get to that later. And and again, as I was starting to say that what I what I really found interesting was the way in which you talked about teachers and the and the dignity of the office of a teacher and the and the vocation of a teacher and the special responsibilities attached to being a teacher, but also not the implied presumption, but the explicit affirmation that every teacher in a Catholic school is a teacher of religion. Well, yeah. we're going to talk about that and whether that's true or not. Um, what is certainly said is that every teacher in, the, in a Catholic school um, has a responsibility to be a witness of the gospel. Um, but whether or not that's the same as a teacher of religion, and, and, and I think the importance of some specificity on that question uh, is, is very interesting. Um, we're going to get to that, but but I want to talk big picture for one more minute, because this document, this instruction, comes in the context, Ed, of... Um, of a series. It comes in the context of a series of of instructions and constitutions over the last, I, I guess, two years, three years maybe, um, that are oriented towards reflecting on the institutional identity or, or, or the, the Christian identity of Catholic institutions and the sort of reform and renewal of those Catholic institutions in the direction of the mission of evangelization. So in 2020, yes. the Congregation for Clergy, and if you listen to this show, you're probably tired of hearing me talk about this document, but it's really something. In 2020, the Congregation for Clergy put out a document um, on the mission, the missional identity of the parish, and it is um, it is a call for a transformation in the Holy Spirit of the parish um, from um, an approach which is a sort of if they'll build it, you know, if if we build it, they'll come sort of approach or a sort of um, consumer uh, mentality. You, you have Ed decried the consumerism of the parish, where it's sort of like I come to the parish to be, you know, fed, quote unquote, and I expect that the that Father in the Less Lake, less of a field hospital, more of a McDonald's. Precisely right. I sort of expect that the staff will, you know, do for me. And what is your parish doing for you? Um, to a, a mentality that not just sort of says like, well, we all have to contribute to the common flourishing of the parish, but the parish exists for a mission, and that mission is the transformation of this community to Christ. Not not those of us who are already here, but the whole of the community, and by the way, our common work for the transformation of this community to Christ will sanctify us and lead us deeper into the evangelizing mission and identity of Christ as well. So the parish, the the the, the community which is the parish, the, the, the stable community which is the parish, um, has an obligation, uh, a, a common mission, which is um, the proclamation of, of the gospel and 
as we live that together, as we reflect on what that means for every aspect of our life together, um, we ourselves will be drawn more deeply into Christian identity. It, it's a very cool document that I have not really, other than me kind of talking about it every like five minutes here on the podcast, I, I have really not seen a whole lot from. I certainly have not seen, and, and if I'm wrong, readers, please, I mean, listeners, please like actually email me or or DM me or you people get in touch with me in very many ways. Do it um, because if you're seeing this um, this document like finding um, an application out in the wild where a bishop is bringing to, if you're a pastor and bishops are bringing pastors together to like study it and talk about it, I want to know about that because I want to report on it, but I'm not seeing it yet. <coughs> so I'm not seeing that yeah. document go anywhere. And then the next one in this sort of series that I see at least is Predicate Evangelium, which is which is whose goal is what Ed? Ah, uh, well, <laughs> what does it say it's aiming for? Okay, just to say, well, <laughs> um, it has a number of stated aims, but I think the one you're driving at, and the clue is in the title, is to um, reorient the functioning governance of the universal church through the Roman Curie to put it better at the service of the evangelization. Right. Um, yeah, that's and that's very well said, to reorient the Curie, you know, to put it at the service of the evangelization. Um, you know, do, do we, Predicate Evangelium, by the way, if you didn't, no, it was a document that came out earlier this month, an apostolic constitution that came out earlier this month that rejiggers the uh, – oh, well, actually, we're going to broadcast this show tomorrow on April the 1st, so that came out last month um, – that rejiggers the sort of uh, offices of the Roman Curia, if you will. And its aim, its stated aim, is uh, is a reorientation of an institution in service of, of the evangelizing mission of the church. And and now we have this, whose stated aim, which actually was published in January – was is dated January, but came out this week. This school, this instruction on schools, whose stated aim is the sort of re, um, in a certain way, reconstitution of Catholic schools to the extent that they need it, or the conversion of Catholic schools towards again that mission of um, of of forming students to view um, the whole of knowledge, the whole of human history, the whole science, the whole of uh, mathematics, whatever, through the lens of the gospel, and sort of building and creating an evangelizing Christian community around that. So there's this thing going on um, that, that I really think um, is, is very interesting. I, I think you're right. And I think... You think um, I'm reading too much into that? No, I don't think you're reading too much. I, I, I hadn't uh, lined this up with Predicati Evangelium uh, the way that you have, but I definitely saw this as a companion piece um, to the Congregation for Clergy's document on the parish. And, and I think that is exactly right. And I think you're right also. Um, you're entirely right to say that this fits within the same um, sort of mentality and intentional reorientation of the church's institutional life towards the evangelization in Predicati Evangelium. I think you're exactly right. And I think it's true. I I think um, there, are, there are probably also other documents you could think of um, that would... That would play into this. I mean, I... The new book six, the new penal section of the Code of Canon Law? No, I don't know that you could necessarily <laughs> call that. Um, but Oriented towards a, sort of a re... No, re, but I feel re, like the CDF came out with something in the last two years that is also... A, anyway, if it comes to me, it comes to me. But the, the point I was going to say is it shows that um, often we... If, if you don't take a step back from sort of the day-to-day what's happening... You can miss that there is, in fact, a method behind the sort of chaos and madness of the daily news cycle, that the Vatican is moving with an agenda, moving with a plan, moving forward with a coherent whole. Oh, oh you know what it was? I was to say Pope Francis's letter to the German bishops telling them to knock off this synodal nonsense. That 
um, their version that, of their their nonsense version of synodal stuff, right? The yeah, synodal yeah, 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 way, yeah, which yeah. is neither synodal nor, nor ecclesiastical. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. You know, the Vatican has told them so. But Pope Francis wrote to the German bishops in 2019. He wrote them a very long letter. In fact, that wasn't even the German bishops; it was to all the faithful of Germany, mm-hmm. it was to the Church in Germany, um, and basically saying that your your priorities seem to be technocratic and policy based. And that's right. Se- yeah, and seem to be moving entirely in the direction of trying to change church teaching to meet the zeitgeist and to accommodate. And his response to all this was nish nish, um, and said, "No, what what the church needs always and everywhere, and especially in the church in Germany, where you are hemorrhaging members hand over fist, to mix a metaphor." Um, he said, you Actually, need to focus on the evangelization. It's a gruesome mixed metaphor, I, I, I must admit. <laughs> the hand over fist hemorrhage is something I can't even totally understand, but I never want to think about it again. <laughs> My God, man. For that. <laughs> I apologize for that. Um, but yeah, this is, this is very much a theme of, uh, of, the, of the Pope's um, papacy, that it is all about the evangelization, that every, every reform, every institution, every... Every step in the life of the church needs to be pointed towards the evangelization. I think that is a, a wonderful thing to understand and to draw out. I think it is, I mean, in the context of something like as big as the invasion of Ukraine, I, I think it's understandable that we can sometimes lose sight of uh, the bigger picture in these things. But I think more generally, it is, it's a shame that this isn't more clearly seen and drawn out um, because the, it is it is there to be seen. I think you're right. And and if you have, and I and I think we need this with every, um, with every pope, we in every era of the church, we we need the hermeneutical key to understand what's going on and what, um, and what the pope is talking about and why he speaks in the way that he does. And with Pope Francis, I think it is very much that this is a this is a pope and this is a papacy that is defined by the evangelization. And I think a lot of the things that we uh, worry about and talk about and have questions about, particularly, for example, around the global synodal process and the concepts of dialogue and, and things like that. We've, we've often said none of this makes any sense if there isn't an understanding of what this conversation, what this dialogue is for. And if we understand that what it's for is the evangelization, it makes sense very quickly uh, that, you know, that then finds its proper place. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's, that is a very good context to frame this, uh, this document from the congregation in. Before we talk about a few more things in this instruction, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Ed, one of the toughest jobs in Catholic ministry is fundraising. Whether you're fundraising for a parish, a diocese, a Catholic high school, an elementary school, for campus ministry, fundraising is tough work. Uh, it is. It is. My my first jobs in my career were as a fundraiser uh, for a Catholic charity and then uh, in politics. And it is it is hard work. You You have to carry a big burden on that. Well, the sponsor for this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is Petrus Development. And Petrus Development brings you this summer the Petrus Development Conference 2022, where Catholic fundraising professionals from across the country will gather in Naples, Florida from June 13th to 15th to develop the tools and the community they need to make fundraising enjoyable and fulfilling. I can think of a couple of occasions, actually, in in my previous career as a fundraiser when when this sort of thing would have been very helpful, if for no other reason than for the fellowship. Uh, you know, you you carry a big weight in that role. Yeah. 
And if you're a Catholic fundraising professional and you're looking to develop a community of like-minded development professionals, consider the Petrus Development Conference 2022, June 13th to 15th, in Naples, Florida. You can register at petrusdevelopment.com slash PDC22, petrusdevelopment.com slash PDC22. And Ed, guess what? Uh, I don't know. If you use the coupon code PILLAR, P-I-L-L-A-R, all caps, you get $50 off your registration. And if you register this month, in the month of April, you could be among the registrants to receive a $40 airport shuttle voucher. Um, that. That sounds like actually quite a sizable discount all in. Yeah, it sounds like a great discount. It sounds like a great opportunity. And if you're a Catholic fundraising professional, get ready and get excited for the Petrus Development Catholic Fundraising Professional Conference 2022, petrusdevelopment.com slash PDC22. And we're back after that word from our sponsors. And Ed, you wanted to talk about some uh, some decidedly more. We have been talking about. Oh, you know what? I have to get used to coming back from a commercial break. I am not keyed up to come back from commercial, and uh, and that's what we're doing. And I have to get used to coming back from commercial. I so, hope you um, have to get used to it. We we need we need all the help we can get this, com- this commercial by the way this is our first commercial episode a commercially sponsored episode of the pillar podcast and i'm 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 excited about that and i hope you are too listeners um this uh a commercially sponsored episode of the pillar podcast is another way that we can continue to make the pillar happen make the podcast happen make the um, investigative reporting and analysis that we do happen and um accomplish this big important goal of ours which is to um add more reporting voices to the pillar to um bring uh, voices doing serious Catholic reporting and analysis from around the world um, into our newsroom and into your inboxes. So um, the, this like this new thing that we're doing of uh, of a little bit of um, commercialization, um, if you will, of the uh, of the podcast is one part of it. But the real driver of uh, of our work, um, listeners, is uh, is you. Um, PillarPodcast.com slash subscribe is the real um, is the real way. Uh, your subscriptions is uh, is the predominant means by which the pillar does the thing um, that it does. Um, and with that said... It's the only one that I trust, by the way. <laughs> you the advertisers are listening. No, I don't mean I think that they're nefarious people. I just mean that I I trust our readers to be with oh, us. Oh, I see. Month after month, I year see. after and year. And I trust our advertising partners to be with us, too, Ed, month after month, year after year. They're good, and we're good, and thank you for doing it. And if you have a Catholic apostolate or a business that appeals to the listeners of the Pillar Podcast, um, reach out to us, and we are glad to talk with you about sponsorship at this here show as well. Ed, there were some—we have been talking about—I got to get used to coming back from commercial. We have been talking about the identity of the Catholic School for Culture of Dialogue and Instruction, which was published this week by the Congregation for Catholic Education. Um, Before the break, we were talking about it from sort of a big-picture perspective. What does it say? What is it—where does it fit in the narrative of some things that have been happening— in the church over the past few years, but there were some specific things that you really wanted to dive into with regard to the identity of the Catholic school for a culture of dialogue. And now is your moment. Okay. Um, well, the, the first thing I want to say is, uh, and this is something I wanted to mention earlier, and then it slipped my mind as I was talking as it, as things so often do is that the, the document of the congregation of Catholic education actually quotes Pope Francis sort of right up front and says, it's not that Catholic schools are called to be sort of walled off 
insular communities just of Catholics, that they have an, they have an evangelizing role, that there is the expectation that in a Catholic school, not everyone will be Catholic necessarily, that there will be non-Catholic students and that the church has, and the school community has a special responsibility towards them to see that the gospel is announced to them because nothing in the church makes sense if the gospel is not being proclaimed. And so there's that. And in, in talking about um, the role of dialogue, both the school in dialogue with wider society and dialogue within the school, um, it's very clear. And it quotes from answers. You cannot dialogue if you have no identity. Right. I thought that was really something. It was a perfect. It was a perfect line and a perfect summation of what this whole document is getting at. Is why do we need a Catholic identity? Because if we don't understand who we are and what we believe, and instead rely on um, you know sort of a, a sort of amorphous contentless in the Catholic tradition, then it's impossible to have an authentic dialogue because we don't know what we're talking about. We don't know who we are. That's an interpretation. That is an interpretation uh, of the Second Vatican Council's document, Gaudium et Spes, which um, I talked about in a few weeks in the show, but I'm reminded of that, right? Because Gaudium et Spes talks about the, the, the need for the church to engage with the modern world for the sake of for the sake of evangelization and for the sake of transformation of the of the world to, to the kingdom of Christ there's a need for the church to really engage with the world even on its own terms and even sort of according to according to its own ways of talking and thinking and, and, and being but um, and, and Gaudium et kind of really calls for that and emphasizes that but where the, that text has been radically misunderstood I think um, is when it's been taken to mean, um, in order to engage with the world, we have to engage without sort of a, without sort of a knowing who we are and being who we are and uh, affirming who we are, right? So, um, well, and accepting that who we are is open to compromise. Sorry, we should do that. No, I'm saying that's the misinterpretation of the councils. The idea that the Catholic identity is sort of it's a it's a it's an opening gambit, but we, we there's room for negotiation, or, or not even there's room. Sometimes I think there's a perception not just that there's room for negotiation, but like oh, the Catholic tradition can better inform secularity, and secularity can better inform Catholicism. And I think that's true about some elements of like how we administer temporal goods or something like that. But in terms of nah. fundamental tenets of our identity, it is good nope. that we it is good that we use nope. generally accepting accounting nope. principles in uh, the administration of our face. goods. It is nay, nay, good. Moose face. It is good I that we independently hearing this hey, modernist Masonic Don't you think it is good? Like, don't, wouldn't you think no. it would be good, for example, if the dicasteries of the Holy See were audited by, a, by an independent accounting firm using the generally accepted accounting principles of modernity? Nah. Oh come uh, on! You are I. You're in a corner now, and you're pretending you're no, not. No, I'm not actually. And you, you can check the record on this. In 2017, when that audit was canceled by then Archbishop Betchew extra legally, um, which he did not have legal authority to do, uh, and Cardinal Pell's former department was trying to organize all this. I actually I wrote at the time that while I understood. Um, the the impetus behind trying to have a proper forensic accounting of all the Vatican departments, and I understood and deplored the apparent uh, extra legal means by which the accounting uh, was canceled. I did point out there are reasons why uh, a sovereign government wouldn't want an external secular company coming and having sight across all of its of its books. So no, I no. Nope. See, this, I is, can go to the this is why th- this points to something which I have always said, but you're sort of exemplifying it, which is that the thing that we 
uh, really care about is good governance. And we want yep. to see, in that case, what what you're claiming is like, effectively, I was ticked because it's not good governance that someone with the authority to order something can order it and it be canceled by someone without the authority to cancel it, whether you think it's a good idea or not. And I, I actually – Correct. I think that's great. But I would say, Ed, that the church has benefited from um, from nope. the accounting practices of modernity. Secular modernity has taught the church nothing oh but gosh. vice. Oh, my and gosh. Si- no. It, I'm sorry. There, no, no. No, 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 okay. no, no. Anything, anything good that appears to come out of the secular world and into the church is merely the echo in the secular well, world of something that the church had first taught. It. I don't, I don't disagree. But sometimes the echo. Is, uh, I, I don't think I disagree with that. I'd have to think about it. But sometimes the echo, the echoing, can have value. And you know, Ratzinger, who we both like. There's a reason why Ratzinger really liked engaging – Ratzinger is what? A biblical theologian. And there's a reason why Ratzinger really liked engaging with Protestant biblical theologians. And I think Ratzinger would say – It's because he liked being the smartest guy. Oh, ever. my gosh. I, I, I think Ratzinger would say – indeed, I know Ratzinger would say engaging with Protestant um, biblical theologians has helped the church tremendously to do better biblical theology. Um, and it is true that the principles which are which were, are being drawn from them are um, – Best understood at Catholic principles. Nevertheless, they weren't sort of as a practical matter being lived in the in the uh, in the in the tangible reality of the church or the church's intellectual reality of the moment. Well, not conceding to that particular example in Forma Specifica, I would also point out that you've you've likened apples to oranges there because what you you started off with secular world and now oh, you've okay. moved to Protestants. So Do unless you're arguing well, that guess, Protestants are effectively <laughs> secular, I guess I would ask open to. I guess I would ask what you think. You more than I think it's a good thing that the church has in, um, has drawn up into herself and incorporated so much uh, of Roman of the Roman legal tradition, a secular legal tradition. So you more than I. Anyway, this is a big diversion. And I don't this think, is a huge diversion, but I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I don't it. think our listeners like when we get off topic. You know, they listen to this show for a tight show about one thing and one thing. All right, fine. Okay, so I'm and just going to propose true. to you. I know it's not true. Well, no one is listening to this show because they expect a tight or coherent conversation about it. But anything if you're listening to this show and you'd like to advertise with the Pillar Podcast, okay, sorry, oh, go for the love of God. If you would, if you're if you're a private citizen, if you're a listener who would like to advertise this show, let me tell you, our rates are scandalously reasonable. So you can come, and we will sing you happy birthday. Whatever it takes to keep the and lights fact, on here, if you I am committed. Are a listener who doesn't like ads in the show? You could buy the ad time and either yes. say your own thing or get us to just keep talking. I mean, just I just want to point that out. You can buy up the time that we would have otherwise. That, that sold is true. If you don't want ad breaks in this show, get people to subscribe because I tell you what. That's that's the fastest All right, way. Keep I going. love that. Anyway, no, I want to propose to you some quotes from this document and tell me if you think you can see where this might reasonably have been expected to generate some controversy in the US secular media or even sections of the US Catholic media mm-hmm. as the Vatican taking sides in in some ongoing issues. In Catholic schools, in fact, the service of the teacher is an ecclesiastical munis and office, and it's and end quote. But it also goes on to describe it as also bear. This is speaking about teachers, also bearing witness through their lives, through which they allow the Catholic school to realize its formative project to witness. Now, does that what not is it sound that you're like wanting it? me to? Uh... Well, Same. I'm saying if you're a diocese who's claiming every teacher is a teacher of religion, I think they are. Because if you're describing their office, if you're saying every teacher holds an ecclesiastical office. Well, an ecclesiastical uh, office is an office which exists for a stable purpose. But I wouldn't say, for example, that the finance officer of, of a diocese 
uh, is a teacher of religion. No. Teacher of religion is one category within the realm of ecclesiastical office or function. Would you not say? Fine, but for the purposes of U.S. law and exemption and First Amendment exemptions about who is or is not a religious minister or officer. If with schools, if the church, if the Vatican is saying every Catholic school teacher has an ecclesiastical office. There's a lot of rights and responsibilities that come along with that in canon law, and I would say this is uh, yeah, it is a big deal. Not because they're teachers impactful. of religion. I, I just don't want you to conflate things. It is a, oh, it is a big deal to say that Catholic schools pose- that Catholic teachers possess Catholic school teachers possess ecclesiastical offices. An ecclesiastical office is a, is a, um, a function in the church constituted stably by the de- by the decree of the. And I'm just saying this ad hoc, so I know some canons is going to tell me I got it, the words a little wrong, but. Um, uh, some some uh, some function in the church. You which take is, that tone out of your mouth when you say some. Well, canons. Uh, look, I I am. I'm just saying we're going to get a note from some canons that says, well, you, you know, you didn't recite the canon precisely properly. I know. I'm just saying what the thing is. I don't have it in front of me. But now, Father Caslin would not approve of you. Oh, Father Caslin, by the way, who's a mentor of our. Father Caslin, more than anyone I know, would have laughed about some canonist doing precisely that because Father Caslin, as well as any of us, knows what some canonists can be like. Well, that's true. But none of our listeners, Father obviously. Ca- none of our listeners, obviously. But Father Caslin was also very clear. Never talk about the code without the code in front of you. Ecc- which is why I've opened it. In ecc- Canon 145, an ecclesiastical office is any go. function constituted in a stable manner by divine or ecclesiastical ordinance to be exercised for a spiritual purpose. An ecclesi- ah, a spiritual right. purpose. An ecclesiastical ah. office is any function constituted in a stable manner by divine or ecclesiastical ordinance to be exercised for a spiritual purpose. The obligations and rights proper to individual ecclesiastical offices are defined either in the law by which the office is constituted or in the decree of the competent authority by which the office is at the same time constituted and conferred. So the obligations and rights of the, of the function of teacher have to be established in, in Catholic schools either in particular law, in the particular law of a diocese, or... Um, in the sort of decree of appointment. But this is, um, the reason Ed and I are making a big deal about this is that it is a big deal. An ecclesiastical office is a particular kind of stable function in the church with that, which, which is constituted for a spiritual purpose and has rights and obligations. And um, and to say that a teacher in a Catholic school is has an ecclesiastical office affirms that every Catholic school teacher exists for a spiritual purpose. And uh, yes. and that's that's a big deal, and it actually it comes up later in this text. So we know that one of the controversies that has happened in this school in in this in this country over the past I don't know multiple years has been the situation where um, where Catholic school teachers are not living lives in accord with the teaching of the Catholic Church, whether they're um, you know in most prominently this has happened because Catholic school teachers have found themselves um, contracting same sex marriages and. Um, after contracting same-sex marriages being dismissed. This is something which has happened often. I, I would like to put an asterisk here and just insert a little note, if I may. Go ahead. You are correct that those cases tend to get most of the attention and the sort of um, disingenuous pushback on that is often, well, you never see this happening with teachers who get pregnant and are unmarried or things like that. First of all, you do. You see it happen quite a lot, actually. It just doesn't tend to get reported all that much. Um, but the second thing is the church and Catholic schools and dioceses in many places draw a distinction between a moral lapse by a Catholic teacher and the a firm habitual moral of, condition. The, exactly. A habitual moral condition, a way of life that is patterned and established and intends to continue. Right. So the difference and between getting the pregnant and contracting um, a, 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 a same-sex marriage is that getting pregnant signifies a moral lapse. Everyone who has gotten pregnant, getting pregnant and not being married, we need to qualify that. Everyone who has gotten yes. <laughs> pregnant without being married, save for the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, engaged in some 
sexual contact outside of outside of the relationship of marriage. You know, some sexual they had sex outside of marriage. That's how they made the baby, and uh, and uh, and so that does signify um, a moral decision, um, an amoral decision, in fact. Um, but everyone who is uh, who has contracted a marriage, uh, which is contrary to the teachings of the church, and actually people say, well, don't you think that applies to people who are uh, who are um, married outside the church, divorced and, so, and, divorced and civilly married and stuff? Yes, I, I think if it's known and it's a subject to scandal, it does. I mean, part of the issue yes. is um, a, t- a, the, um, a person can't be in a habitual condition which is which is known to be contrary to the teachings of the church um, because that's a counter witness to the to the thing. Now. Right. Not everyone who is who has contracted either a same-sex marriage or, in fact, um, a, a, a an invalid civil marriage. Not, not always is that known. Um, you know, it, it's when it's known that it becomes a scandal. Now, I think people say right. the the mere contracting is a public act, and therefore, and I do think there has there were. It's reasonable to say that there has to be some consistency about that. It's reasonable to say that there ought to be some consistency about that. But but the point absolutely. Is, um, the point is, this is a thing which has been coming up, right? That right. teachers have been being dismissed because they contract. I, I just wanted to. I just wanted to insert a little note there. It's like, this is not a. The, the accusation doesn't mean that. Oh well, this only just. This is a. This is an anti gay marriage thing. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's not. Yeah, because not I actually out. do think that if um, being being civilly married, um, being being divorced and civilly remarried outside of the you know outside of the bonds of marriage, actual marriage qua marriage, which is effectively to say, um, you know, having. Um, uh, having a consort, have, having a domestic consort who is not one spouse, um, if that's known in the same way that if a civil, if a same-sex marriage is known, that is a source of scandal. It is, uh-huh. and I know, well, I know, I know of instances where people holding ecclesiastical office have been in such a circumstance, and they have been disciplined and removed from their office. Mm-hmm. So, so I just want to make that clear. Okay, so the, you know. so. What we're talking about right now is that this phenomenon has been happening. Mostly yes. in the headlines have been people in same-sex marriages who have been getting fired or not seeing their contracts renewed. And um, and uh, there was there have been some Supreme Court cases about what the, what churches, religious organizations can do about this. And the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court is to say that a person that a, um, a, a, a religious entity exercises authority over a, a minister. And it's up to them to define what a minister is, and therefore there has been – it's called the ministerial exemption in a case called Hosanna Tabor. And therefore there has been a movement among um, Catholic churches to define every teacher as as a minister, um, to say well, everyone of them someone who holds purpose. office for a spiritual purpose right, I think is not Right, that's what I'm saying. Now, the, the, yeah. the, this instruction saying teachers hold an ecclesiastical office, it seems to me is an affirmation that every teacher has – every teacher's function according to the – perspective of the congregation for clergy does exist for spiritual purpose and that does have civil law implications yes yeah and you said you know there have been questions about the the sort of hiring and firing policies of catholic schools and things and the the instruction from the congregation for clergy wades directly into this it makes it very very clear it says first of all that teachers have to be outstanding in current doctrine mm -hmm. and integrity of life and that they require quote initial and permanent formation toward that end and and this is what the instruction says quote Following the doctrine of the church, it is therefore necessary for the school itself to interpret and establish the necessary criteria for the recruitment of teachers. This principle applies to all recruitments, including that of administrative personnel. The relevant authority, therefore, is required to inform all prospective recruits of the Catholic identity of the school and its implications, as well as their responsibility to promote it. And if the person being recruited does not comply with the requirements of the Catholic school and its belonging to the church community, the school is responsible for taking the necessary steps. Dismissal may also be resorted to, taking into account all circumstances on a case-by-case case basis. Right? So it is actually saying 
there needs to be a, a process, uh, an escalating process of sort of discipline and, you know, but there has to be. And you know why there has to be a proper escalating process? And because in an ecclesiastical office, one because has right to do process. Because it's an ecclesiastical office. Yeah, exactly. And so that's this why is, you this have is canonical what's rights. What's happening now in this instruction is essentially um, the church saying, yeah, okay, the Catholic Church in America has been saying that all teachers are ministers of religion in order to access the ministerial exemption. Okay. Um, we actually do think being a teacher is an ecclesiastical office. They say it right there and they reference the canons mm-hmm. related to. They reference Canon 145. But because you have an ecclesiastical office, it is also true that people who possess an ecclesiastical office have a right to a certain kind of due process, have a right to an appeal. That appeal has a suspensive effect. So it actually – it doesn't mm-hmm. just say the bishop can do what he wants. It says um, we're Ooh. going to ecclesialize this thing which has been happening, which is schools it, have been uh, saying civilly this person has a ministerial exemption. But they haven't been conferring ecclesiastical offices upon them with a decree, treating people who, as if they have an ecclesiastical office with the right of appeal and for goodness sake a suspensive effect and all those things. Um, the mm-hmm. church has been saying, hey – Okay, um, there is this obligation incumbent upon teachers to be witnesses of the gospel, and um, uh, uh, that is consistent. And with that said, teachers also have rights. Oh, yeah, a lot of canonical rights. And um, I just want to go back to a point that you were making earlier, because we were sort of – I was quibbling with you when you said it says that all all, um, teachers are teachers of religion, because it doesn't say that. And the reason why that was important to you and the reason why I quibbled about it is because um, the Code of Canon Law affirms – has affirmed and does affirm that the diocesan bishop has the right to um, be involved in the appointment, the hiring, and also to uh, to demand to, uh, to to demand the removal. I don't have the can in front of me, but you do that. I'll uh, get the can. Maybe I should get it to uh, to, no, to get... see to the removal of a teacher of religion who doesn't meet the qualifications for the gig. Right. So the Code of Canon Law has already affirmed that that reality that um, the diocesan bishop has this sort of oversight prerogative of teachers of religions in all schools of an diocese, whether or not it's a diocesan school or a school run by the Christian Brothers or the Sisters of Perpetual Sisterhood or um, the Society of Jesus or any other religious institute. So the code has already said bishops have authority over teachers of religion. But this instruction says bishops also have authority over other teachers, that bishops also have the ability to um, – to uh, I, I think it's like to request and then to um, – uh, and then to uh, um, make provisions of his own authority um, if he needs to um, – to address other teachers who are uh, who who are not living in accord with the teachings of the church, so there is a um, there is an addressing the instruction sort of broadens the prerogative of the diocesan bishop at, when it says that all teachers occupy an ecclesiastical office for a spiritual purpose. It also broadens the prerogative of the diocesan bishop to get involved in um, teachers. So, since all teachers participate in the ecclesial mission. Um, the diocesan bishop may also remove a teacher in the case of a Catholic school run by the diocese or eparchy. In other cases, he may require that a teacher be removed if the conditions of, of, of his or her appointment, namely those conditions that you said about them agreeing to uphold the teachers, are, are no longer met. The bishop has to make explicit the reasons and decisive evidence which pos- justify a possibly remo- possible removal, respecting the teacher's right of defense and giving him the possibility of defending himself. So... Um, the, the the code is, again, sort of weighing in on the – or the instruction is weighing in on this question, which was sort of extra canonical, beyond the law. So already th- this existed for teachers of religion. Bishops could hire and see to remove teachers of religion. Now, beyond teachers of religion, the bishop can intervene, request that a, request that a teacher be removed um, – 
require that a teacher be removed um, if the if certain conditions are met and if the right of defense has been met. So um, there is an affirmation of the prerogative of the diocesan bishop to safeguard the orthodoxy and witness of the school, and also an affirmation of the obligation of the diocesan bishop not to just toss someone out without due process or because they don't like the cut of their jib or because there's a rumor that they are, uh, you know, cohabiting with seven sheep and a and a Belgian chocolatier or something like that, um, you know, but that there's actually <laughs> evidence. It's a vivid picture you paint. Of the thing. Um, seven sheep and a Belgian chocolatier is a common uh, lifestyle these days. I, I, you know, I, I don't want you to judge it, but it's something that some people have. I, I don't read the Atlantic, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> so it is an example of, oh, it is an example of, it, it is an ecclesial, it, it, it is an, there is an ecclesiality here. There is a fundamental ecclesiality here. There is a sort of ecclesializing, a churchizing of some organic practices that have developed in the U.S., but not completely. It is right to say the bishop can't, shouldn't just toss someone without a, an opportunity for them to have some right of defense. You know, that's right when people say that. But it's also right to say the bishop has some obligation to safeguard orthodoxy. And both of those things are affirmed, I think, in a, a beautiful and sort of um, systematic way in this instruction. So I, I think it's quite cool. I do, too. Now, the last question we're going to contemplate in this episode, please, J.D., is, so why doesn't anyone care? Oh, what do you mean, why doesn't anyone care? Why doesn't anyone care about well, the instruction? Have you seen um, I'm on a- Catholic schools jumping up and down about this? Have you been inundated with emails from Catholic education authorities in different dioceses talking about this? Are you I asked the school seeing- diocesan school administrator the other day. I said, hey, did you read the instruction on the day that it came out, which was... I don't know, what, Tuesday, Wednesday? Tuesday. Tuesday. I said, hey, did you read the instruction? And she said, oh, man, I have it open in a tab, but it's budget season, and I've been inundated with calls from principals all day. Mm. Um, That's interesting. And why do you think the media— I wouldn't say that that means diocesan administrators, school administrators don't care. I would say things like— No, no, no. I would say things—you did, actually, and I would say I don't think it means that— I would say things like this can easily end up on the shelf if there isn't sort of like— I mean, there are a lot of implications for this, that teachers have a right to make recourse, which we haven't even talked, or excuse me, that, that parents have a right to make recourse, which we haven't even talked about, um, that there are a lot of like practical implications to that, but it will probably You go don't have to sell me on, on the, the practical shelf. legal implications. No, I mean, that was probably the first thing shelf. I turned like, to Ex-Cordia in Ex-Cordia Ecclesia has lots of practical applications that have just gone entirely on the shelf um, and yeah. any, any number of other texts. And this will probably go on the shelf unless the U.S. bishops and individual U.S. bishops in their schools offices like study this very carefully and figure out what it means and how they're going to engage with it and everything else. Um, Partially. Partially. But really, Rome issued this document, and it's going to live or die by Rome's willingness to stand by it and see it implemented. And frankly, as you wrote in an analysis this week, we have an ongoing... Case um, that has been major stalled case here in the U- good old for US years, yeah. a mm-hmm. standoff between a Jesuit high school and the local archbishop mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. its ability to call itself Catholic, its Catholic identity, yeah. which the bishop has said, I am in charge of determining whether or not this is a Catholic school, mm-hmm. and you are not a Catholic school because you are demonstrating hiring practices that have teachers wholly at odds with the moral teaching of the Catholic Church, and you show no interest or inclination to revisiting those policies or um, not renewing the contracts of those staff. That it went to the Congregation for Catholic Education, and what has been the response, JD? Uh, it's in. It's been. We've been waiting since 2019. Right. Yeah. So three years. That case has just been sort of quietly sitting there, and we've reported on it from time to time and checked in on it. So it's not like we've forgotten about it. But 
I'm sorry. That case, at least on the large amounts of publicly available information on it, because both the Jesuit province and the local archbishop have been were fairly free and frank in their exchange of views. In the beginning, now and, that the lo- local media has lost interest. Right, but I'm saying the, the actual original terms yeah. of the disagreement were very clear and well known yeah. because everyone from the schools of the province to the archdiocese were saying, here's our policy, here's what the other side is saying, here's why we don't agree, and we aren't going to agree on this, etc. So yeah. it's not like we don't understand the sort of fine print of what was going on in specific circumstance. If even a case that appears to be that cut and dry, as according to the text of this instruction, which, by the way, is retroactive because it clarifies it's an a instruction, lot. It clarifies a lot. It doesn't establish... <laughs> Like Dick and Tuscan newbie, it doesn't establish new laws except for all the new laws it establishes. <laughs> We're not going there. Not going there. Oh um, man! But my point East is, Asia if, has always if, been a <laughs> stop it. Well, my what point is, if even that, no, we're not, you're, no, we're, no one cares why you're laughing, because if you start talking about why you're laughing, we'll be talking about Dignitas Kanubi for 45 minutes. Wouldn't you like to talk about Dignitas Kanubi for 45 minutes? I would, but I, it, it, this is a, a hectic day. <laughs> it is. Okay, so anyway, what was your point, Ed? My point was, if if one case can languish for three years without any clear resolution, even though the facts of the case and the law according to this instruction would seem to be fairly clear and the mind of the congregation would seem to be fairly explicit. If that case can't be resolved, no case is going to be resolved in um, under the terms of this instruction. So people aren't going to get too head up about it because they know that this is a this is a nice feverino. It's you know, it makes some some wonderful statements and recommendations and you know, it's a wonderful exposition on the idea of Catholic education and the community of a Catholic school. But is this actually going to be lived as law in the life of the church? I have my doubts. I, I, I think you're right. I, I have my doubts that the congregation is going to do anything. I would not be surprised, though, if some dioceses it, – it'll have to be over summer vacation, right? I mean, like, no, dioc- no diocesan schools office is going to get to this before school gets out because diocesan schools offices are uh, stretched thin, and most of them are still getting called – you know, 55 times a day to be yelled at about COVID um, one way or the other. So I, I, I don't think that anything will happen with them until uh, until summer break. But I, I do think it is possible that dio- some diocesan schools offices are going to give this some very serious study. But it's such a it's honestly there's so there it's there's so much in this instruction that I think the I, I hope that the uh, Committee for Catholic Education is going to take it up in a, in a serious way and commission some real study about what it means, maybe in partnership with um, like the um, Various kind of Catholic educational, you know, things, or or the School of Education at some Catholic colleges or whatever. But I mean, and some canonists, because there are a lot of things in here that stood out to us about hierarchical recourse and you know this stuff we're talking about about ecclesiastical office, and, and not just us, but every canonist that I know is talking about this right now. Every canonist I know is talking about this right now. But mo- for most of them, it's not their job, right? I mean, most of them, it's not their job to to, to in, um, all at, all on their own sort of interpret this for the diocese. But I do hope that will be done, and I think we won't really know until we get a sense of what's happening in the summer with it, and then whether it's a serious agenda. It ought to be a serious agenda item on the uh, uh, on the uh, on the agenda of the November meeting of the U.S. Bishops, which is the next time the U.S. Bishops Conference um, gathers. I, I worry. But I, I worry about that happening. You you think there was a fight over communion? <laughs> I know that's very oh, very true. That is, a and again, very, if Rome is not willing very, to back it up, if if the Congregation for Catholic good. Education or the Dicastery for Culture and Catholic Education, as it will become on June fifth, is all mouth and no trousers on this thing? 
that you are going to see a fight like you won't believe. You think people got upset about talking about abortion and politicians and communion? You ain't seen nothing yet if they start talking about the moral life of teachers and Catholic schools. Oh, man, that is going to be blood on the carpet. Well, I hear you. Okay, Ed, we have got to uh, we have got to wrap up this episode um, of the Pillar Podcast. But before we do, um, Ed, I don't want to wrap. It I up, know, I'm having but fun. you have to because you, I know I'm the one who has to. You have a thing. Um, uh, um, uh, but before we do that, um, Ed, would you like to play a game? Yeah, I didn't. It never. This JD, is, did you make a game? This is an entirely ad hoc episode of the Pillar Podcast, as you know. But I'm I want to tell you that every single time you talked, I worked a little bit on my game. Um, you see, I know you. I, this is how I know you're never listening. <laughs> I was listening. God, I can do two just, things at once, honey. I can. You're just waiting well, for me to I stop talking so once. you can start again. I can do two things at once, and I did. I made, a, I made a little game for us. And, you know, next Sunday is what? Not this Sunday, but what is next Sunday? Oh, we got Palm Sunday. Come next on. Sunday is Palm Sunday. Also opening day. Also opening day, and you is the Friday most places. Uh, opening day of baseball. Uh, opening day of baseball. Yeah. Uh, opening day refers to the opening day of the baseball season. Um, but, but next Sunday, in addition to opening day, is uh, is um, is Palm Sunday, and so we're gonna do just a very short. Because I mean, again, I was mostly listening. Um, but we're gonna do a very short um, Palm Sunday. Yes or no. So I'm going to tell okay. you some customs that people do on Palm Sunday, and you're going to tell me if you like them or not like them, do them or not do them, or like doing them or not doing them. Sounds great. Okay, so Ed, the first one is um, on Palm Sunday, as you know, um, most Catholics in the Latin Catholic Church have what I would call an interactive reading. Um, oh, yeah. You know, there's all the parts and everything and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, not if you, I think, I don't know if that happens if you're a member of the Anglican Ordinary. I don't know if that happens if you go to the Extraordinary Form of the Mass. I don't know if that happens if you're Eastern Catholic. But most Latin Catholics have an interactive reading where we have to play all these parts and all this stuff. So, Ed, yes. my first yes or no is, do you like our no. our sort of role in shouting like, free Barabbas, free Barabbas during the Mass? I mean, free Barabbas, no. yes or no? No. No. Okay. You, that, you are not, you like the gospel to be read by a cleric. The thing is, people don't get into it. That's, <laughs> you want to get more into it. Well, it's not that I do it properly or don't do it. Is my feeling? You know, he's a Gervas Barabbas. It's like you know what? If you're not gonna, if you're not gonna get involved, just don't. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, it, it falls flat. It feels, I guess, it is feels the a little I'm empty, it. a little hollow. Like if yeah, you're going to exactly. be shouting free Barabbas, you ought to be knocking some pews over and whatnot. If you are, if you are yelling crucify him, I be. want you know, I want spittle flecked, uh-huh. eye rolling, arms in the air. You know, make it count. Otherwise, don't bother. I hear you. Okay, in some parishes, Ed, and I'm not, I'm not asking you, is this permitted by liturgical law? Okay, um, I'm just saying, um, the, what is your view on this? Do you like it or not like it? I suppose, but in some parishes, the long interactive um, gospel reading on Palm Sunday is replaced by what might be referred to as a passion play, in which perhaps the youth of the parish uh, act out the whole thing, and, and there's a sort of a modified version of the gospel reading and various youth portraying various characters. Uh, 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 an interstitial liturgical passion play. Ed, yes or no? No. 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 Okay. Well, I'm with you. Okay. All right, Ed. Um, there are two kinds of palms that I have received in my life. There is, uh, you know, I grew up mostly in an evangelical Christian church, and then I, as an adult, practiced the Catholic faith. 
there's the Catholic palm. And in America, the Catholic palm is actually just one long, you know, one long thing. One strip. One strip. One, one strip of a frog. Strip of a frog. And then in my youth, there's a – everyone got like a branch with a bunch of – you know, I, mean, yeah. I think it actually was from a fern. I don't know because it was just so, – the whole thing was sort of softer and more pliable. But um, this is a yes or no, I suppose. But Ed, are you a strip man or a or a branch man? A branch. Yeah, me too. I, I wish we I, – I Big we. branches. I'm if sure you, they're look, more expensive, you, but I wish we You were supposed to be able to lay them down on the street and cover the road yeah. for Christ to pass by. You can't do that with the little – I mean, I know that people like to make the little well, crosses that's and stuff. That's, and that's fine. Too. I'm not saying that you can't do that. But get the big branch and then peel off your individual fronts and yeah, I love make it. all the origami that you want. I love getting the big branch. Now, that points to something that many people do during the long interactive reading, Ed, which is um, – the uh, the uh, liturgical activity, Palm Sunday activity of constructing palm crosses, making palm not crosses. Not during the liturgy. Not during the liturgy. Not during the liturgy. In general, yes, because then you put them in the sort of um, Boy, you are just anticipating me every single time. That's where I'm going next. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but in general, yes. Now, what a lot of people do, because they're blessed, right? And then it's like, oh, gosh, you yes. know, we have this thing. They are sacramental. My kids walk out with like 30 in palms. I'm like, oh, geez, what am I going to do now? <laughs> you know, so what a lot of people do with those palm crosses is they take them home and effectively they stick them in the corner of a frame picture of the Pope. So frame picture of the Pope with a palm cross, Ed, yes, as, a, as an essential sort of crucial load-bearing element of home decor, yes or no? Uh, yes. Oh, good. Yes. I'm right there with you. Okay. Now, in, in Italia... Um, I was about to I, I was about to say what you're supposed <laughs> to do with them, but I figured no, let I'm, me do it. In Italia, I mean, I made this game up as we were just for you, and you are just eating my Palm Sunday lunch here. Um, I apologize. Uh, in Italia or in the Vatican City State, if you ever see the Pope with uh, with Palm, and if you look at the picture that I'm probably going to use for this week's uh, podcast, now you know the Pope has this g- giant thing. He has basically a crozier made out of palm. That is all. It's yeah, pretty impressive. All this braiding, and I presume that somewhere in Italy is a craftsman whose father taught him to make palm croziers, and his father taught him. And going all the way back to the palm crozier of St. Peter, there's been some family that has been doing this. Um, Ed, the papal palm crozier, yes or no? Uh, yes, but I'm a little unsettled by it. <laughs> I know it's scary. It's like when I see it, it, it just I I kind of twitch a little bit. I. It, it weirds me out. Fair enough. But yes, it's yes. Now, Ed, you are, as I understand it, um, English. You're English, right? That is how you understand okay. it, yes. So um, I want to ask you about an English Palm Sunday custom that I learned about uh, on a little website I was reading during the, this podcast called Wikipedia. Um, and, Ed, it is the burning of the Jacko Lent. Are you familiar with the burning of the Jacko Lent? Uh, is this where you burn the palms from the previous palm no. Sunday to make the ashes for ash? Wikipedia says it's all the rage. Oh, no. I'm sorry. Gosh, I shouldn't have just skimmed. It was all the rage from the 15th to the 17th centuries. I don't think they do it anymore. I didn't. I, I lived there for the, the 90s and 2000s. I, I, I wasn't oh, there. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Sorry. Uh, uh, here's a custom uh, from the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries of England, which actually already gives me my answer. Um, but, uh, um, hmm. An effigy made of straw and stuffed clothes was um, was uh, constructed during the holy season of Lent, um, abused and stoned on Ash Wednesday while being dragged about the parish. The figure was kept until Palm Sunday when it was burnt. Its burning was often believed to be a symbolic... This, I'm skeptical, but it says it right here. A symbolic revenge on Judas Iscariot who betrayed Christ, but it is equally likely that the figure represented the hated winter and its destruction preparing the way for spring. Jack O'Lant is, is mentioned in Thomas Haywood's Four Apprentices of London, in The Merry Wives of Winter, in Anthony Burgess's Nothing Like the Sun, and in other 
um, uh, period pieces of literature. Ed the Jackalette. Okay. No, no, this, I'm this totally with you. Shades of Wicker Man oh, to it. I'm, I don't know what that is, but also if it's in those centuries in England, it's Protestant. It's some kind of Protestant custom, and I don't need it. Right. Okay. With all due res- ecumenical respect to our Protestant listeners, our dear Anglican, who you called secular uh, earlier, but yeah, <laughs> Anglican clerical. We have several. We have a number of Anglican clerics who listen to this show. I think because there's not an Anglican pillar podcast. You know, I mean. Well, and it's also because a great number of them are canon lawyers. Yeah, that's true. That is a very good point. Anglican canon lawyers. Yes. Okay. Ecclesi- yeah. There's. I'm not. Yeah. Well, sorry. Ed, that that was my dignitas Kenobi moment. I could nearly have said some nerdy stuff there. This episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by the 2022 Petrus Development Conference. Join Catholic fundraising professionals in Naples, Florida, this June to build the tools and community that makes fundraising enjoyable and fulfilling. For more details and to register, go to petrusdevelopment.com/pdc22. PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22 and use coupon code PILLAR in all capital letters, PILLAR in all capital letters, for $50 off your conference registration. And with that said, Ed, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And this episode, if you like the Pillar Podcast, please remember to give us a... uh, uh, a good um, rating, like with the stars and whatnot, and even a good review on whatever podcast app you listen to it. If you really like the po- Pillar Podcast, remember to uh, subscribe because that's what makes it possible. And this episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by Petrus Development. That was a really great episode. <laughs>